welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast, and welcome back to episode two of our Broken Oars University Summer Short Series. We started off calling it the Summer Poetry Readings, but instead we're calling it the Summer Shorts because it's a nice pun, it's a nice play on words. They're shorter than our usual podcasts, and it's summer, so we should all be wearing shorts and getting some light and air to those legs that have been locked away through the long, dark winter and spring that is the British weather. So, if you're new to this, or if you haven't quite caught up with all of our episodes recently, you'll know that we tend to break things up into what seems like a confusing welter of various episodes and broken thoughts and broken oars university and all those kind of things. Essentially, it's all under the one umbrella banner of Lewin and I talking, either to ourselves, like I am now, to each other, which we often do, or to a guest who's come on to chat about life, the universe, and everything. But it's all essentially Broken Oars. The Broken Oars University idea was just something that I put together so that I could talk about things that interest me or used to interest me, just as a way of getting my brain working again after COVID and long COVID. Uh, We've touched upon the romantic poets, uh, romanticism, and that was quite a theory heavy series of little chats. And now for summer, we're having like a book group for rowers. Um, It's not really a book group in as much as I'm asking you to read a novel a week and then come back and sit around and drink Chianti and talk about it. Uh, Every book group that I've ever been in generally starts about talking about the book and then starts talking about other stuff. This is about poets and poetry and it's kind of a whistle-stop tour through poets and poetry. Last week I introduced the series. I said that English literature is an absolute nonsense. You should read what you like in much the same way as you should listen to the music that you like. And you should do what you like in terms of the things that you enjoy doing, rather than having these prescriptive ideas about what we should be doing, what we should be reading, what we should be listening to, really foregrounding the idea that when it comes to things like this, we should be engaging with the things that give us pleasure, that give us engagement, that give us satisfaction, and that give us fulfillment. And in our first episode, we talked about Thomas Hardy. We talked about Thomas Hardy, Dorset peasant, social climber, bit of a shag bag, but generally quite a good poet and quite a good writer. Definitely one worth reading. Poetry, if you've never read it before, think of poetry like very, very expensive chocolate or very, very nice whiskey or really, really good food um, cooked by a Simon Rogan type person. Prose is something you can devour. You can literally turn your brain off and walk through a Jack Reacher novel as a method of displacement. But poetry is a little bit like very, very nice chocolate or very, very nice food or something very, it's very rich. It is, it is a condensed form of engagement. It's a condensed form of writing. It has a lot coiled into a very, very small space. So you maybe might pick up a Thomas Hardy poem, um, one of the ones we talked about last week, and you might sit out in the garden and you might kind of read through it and you might just let those words percolate around in your brain and see what kind of senses and sound sense comes out of it. In the same way that you might put a piece of Tesco finest 90% Peruvian chocolate, just a little square on the tip of your tongue and then letting it melt and letting your taste buds go, oh, well, I'm getting this note, I'm getting that note, I'm getting the other note. This sounds a little bit like cork sniffing. I appreciate that. And there is nothing more annoying than a wine snob or indeed a guitar snob or possibly a rowing snob taking a mouthful of a wonderful vintage and going, oh, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting notes of burning tire. I, I, I'm getting gold in the hot sun. I'm getting, I'm, getting, I'm, getting, I'm getting the feathers of a robin's breast as he hops through the garden on a cold winter's morning. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting right on your tits, aren't I? Yes, you are. Cork sniffing is, of course, another way of marking out those who know from those who don't. And it's absolute and utter nonsense. If you like something, you like something. If you don't, you don't. A guitar is just a guitar. Whether it's a Martin, a Fender, a Gibson, a Peavy, an Ibanez, to the person listening, to 99% of the listening public, a guitar is just something that sounds like a guitar. But you will find people who will literally spend their lives 
debating the differences between a 1937 Martin D18 and a 1938 Martin D18. In the same way that you will find some people debating the differences between a Carl Douglas single and a Swift single. The reality is they're both a single and unless you are really working at the very, very top end of the sport where your livelihood depends upon fractions of seconds and you have done so many miles and have done so much engagement with your shell that you know it intimately, those issues of which one feels best and all of the rest of it can usually be addressed with a good setup. And so we come to this week's poet. We're going to talk about Houseman. Now, that might not be a name that's very familiar to some of you, but A.E. Houseman is the person or the poet responsible more than any other for enshrining an idea of what England is and what Englishness is that we still hang our hats on today. That's the sort of cultural narrative that we that sold us Brexit as protecting this sceptered isle made by nature for herself, that the England was somehow a field of grain by a country lane and there was always village cricket being played as old maids cycle to communion through the morning mist and the landlord pulls a pint of warm beer for the weary traveller. Houseman came out of the period in which those ideas of what England is and what England should be were concretized. The question is maybe whether or not he was creating those ideas or he was reflecting the national mood. It's probably more accurate to say that he was reflecting the national mood. He was a late Victorian poet and in the late Victorian period England was having an identity crisis. England had the largest empire that the world had ever seen. It had urbanised at a massive rate from the Industrial Revolution. Cities had sprung up and then cities had grown and grown and grown and they'd multiplied tenfold and twentyfold. Things like places like London had become the imperial capital. A lot of the landmarks that we associate with London now, Nelson's Column, um, Trafalgar Square, some of the big buildings with the huge columns in the kind of neoclassical style, all of these things grew up around the population. And by the time they did, everyone was wondering, hold on, I don't recognize where I live anymore. What, is, what does it mean to be England? What does it mean to be English? Because when I was born, this was a country village and now it's a suburb of London. Or, or And we have the railway that can link us from London to Mumbai and back, or we have a rail network that can whisk us to Aberdeen at the drop of a hat when it would take weeks previously. And we have all of these inventions, all of these wonderful things, all of this fantastic modernity, but what does it actually mean to be England and English? And a lot of what Houseman wrote caught and reflected that mood. Um, whether he concretized it or whether he reflected it is the question. And it's probably fair to say that he reflected it. Um, as much as invented it, he was reflecting what he could see around him. But there's an interesting complex at work. So let's dive in to A.E. Houseman. Now, he was born in 1859. He lived until 1936, which is a reasonable span for a Victorian gentleman. He was the son of a solicitor. He was christened Alfred Edward Houseman. He was the eldest of seven siblings, son of a solicitor, and he was educated at St John's College, Oxford, having been born in Fockbury, Worcestershire. And that's Fockbury for any of those who are sniggering at the back of the class. He failed his finals at St John's College, Oxford, and he found work as a clerk in the London Patent Office, but he continued to study the classics that had informed his university career to that point. Um, in doing so, he published articles about it. Now, the classics, it's not something that is taught now. I think that my parents, my mum certainly, who went to grammar school, remembers being taught Latin and, and classics at grammar school. Um, 
It was a big thing in the Victorian and the Edwardian period, the idea of a classical education, that the, the literary and philosophical models of ancient Greece and ancient Rome were the things that gentlemen should know in order to equip them to be ready to face the new modern world of steam trains and telegraphs. But the classics were was a big thing. They're still a big thing at Oxford and Cambridge. By 1892, 10 years after he'd left Oxford after failing his finals, he was actually appointed Professor of Latin at University College London. And then by 1911, he'd managed to become a professor of Latin at Cambridge. His first poetry collection, which made his name and which captured a national mood of nostalgia for a, a lost past, a past that had been lost by the sudden development of the imperial nation, was published. In eight, so that was in 1896, he publishes A Shropshire Lad. Um, this was followed by last poems in 1922 and more poems in 1936. There are reasons why he took so long between publications, not least because he was very, very deeply bound up with his academic career. He was one of the great classicists of his era. And his principal scholarly focus, his what we would call his field of study or his discipline now, was to ensure the authenticity of old texts. And he received a lot of praise for his editions of the Roman poets, including Juvenal, Lucan and Manilius, um, and his accuracy in picking apart these texts and, and transcribing them and passing them on were highly praised by other classicists. Um, his poetry, however, made him something of a national figure and a lot of his poems uh, were set to music by some quite famous composers, uh, among them Ralph Vaughan Williams, Ivor Gurney, George Butterworth and the American Samuel Barber. Houseman died in Cambridge and was buried in Ludlow, Shropshire. So that's kind of a brief biography of the man. I've touched upon what the key themes of the late Victorian period were that we, they have created the modern world. This is not a boast. Um, this is not being, this is not me being British or displaying some form of British exceptionalism. The British in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, particularly as the empire grew and the wealth grew, created a lot of the things that we take for granted as being modernity, certainly modernity in the 20th century. Um, but because they'd created that, as they reached the end of the, of the Victorian period, and you have to remember that Queen Victoria was on the throne for a very long time, which added a sense of stability. And as the century wore on and the 1850s became the 1860s and the 1870s and the 1880s, and this wealth was compounding and the landscape was changing and the, the cultural narrative was changing about England and Englishness, about Britishness, what happened was they started thinking, what have we lost? What have we, what have we lost here? So where by the time you get to the late Victorian period, you have this idea that something has been lost. This is when Kenneth Graham starts writing uh, things like Dream Days, um, which leads into Wind in the Willows eventually. The idea of a lost pastoral um, past, the idea that England is somehow in the land and we have moved away from it because of the things that we have created. And to replenish ourselves and nurture ourselves, we need to go back and reconnect with that. So, they are the contexts that we're kind of dealing with. So let's have a look at a poem from A Shropshire Lad on Wenlock Edge. On Wenlock Edge, the wood's in trouble, his forest fleece the reckon heaves, the gale it plies the saplings double, and thick on seven snow the leaves. Put blow like this through halt and hanger, when Uricon the city stood, to the old wind and the old anger, but then it threshed another wood. Then, twas before my time, the Roman at yonder heaving hill would stare, the blood that warms an English yeoman, the thoughts that hurt him, they were there. There, like the wind through woods in riot, through him the gale of life blew high. The tree of man was never quiet. Then twas the Roman, now tis I. 
The gale it plies with saplings double, it blows so hard twill soon be gone. Today the Roman and his trouble are ashes under Uricon. What Houseman is capturing there is a sense of national unease, which was very, very explicitly voiced by Kipling at the time of the Jubilee, when he pointed out that the fate of all empires is to melt away and be forgotten. When everyone else was being triumphal about English power and British power, and these two are not necessarily interchangeable. British people will call themselves British when it suits them, and English when it suits their purposes also. Houseman is capturing this a decade before. He's sensing the change in the wind. Now, he'd been brought up and educated as a child in Worcestershire, and his poems are set in the counties that he would remember from his boyhood. This is another commonplace among Victorian writers. Go and get The Wind and the Willows, which is one of the greatest books ever written for children or adults alike, and you will find that Graham is writing about the landscapes of the Thames that he remembers from his childhood when he was sent down from his alcoholic father in Edinburgh to live with his grandparents um, around about the Marlowe, Cookham and Bourne End area of the Thames. By the time he came to write about the Thames in The Wind in the Willows, it had changed beyond all recognition. What he was writing about was what he remembered, which was his childhood experiences. And Houseman was somewhat similar. He's writing about Worcestershire, Shropshire and the Welsh marshes, where he grew up. Um, he practised what he called his trade as a professor of Latin at UCL and moved to Cambridge in 1911, as we've talked about. So. Apart from that period as a civil servant in the patent office when he was a young man, Houseman was essentially a don and a professor all of his adult life. And he was a don and a professor at the point in time when the idea of being in the ivory towers in the cloisters of Cambridge and Oxford was a very, very real thing. Compounding that, he was also a poet all of his life. Not that he necessarily published poetry regularly, but he was keeping notebooks throughout all of this. Now, he wrote a letter to the American poet Witter Binner in June 1903, um, and this is what he said. My dear sir, you seem to admire my poems even more than I admire them myself, which is very noble of you, but will most likely be difficult to keep up for any great length of time. As for your queries, I wrote the book A Shropshire Lad when I was 35, and I expect to write another when I am 70, by which time your enthusiasm will have had time to cool. My trade is that of a professor of Latin in this college. I suppose that my classical training has been of some use to me in furnishing good models and making me fastidious and telling me what to leave out. My chief object in publishing my verses was to give pleasure to a few young men here and there, and I'm glad if they have given pleasure to you. I'm yours very truly, A.E. Houseman. We catch the Victorian manners there. We catch the stilted nature of formal communication there. Everything is codified and hedged and very, very keeping people at a distance, which was, even though it was a characteristic of the Victorian age, the late Victorian age, it was very definitely a major characteristic of Houseman. So he's talking about his trade, but... The point is that his poetic output doesn't follow the restricted pattern his letter suggests. He was never prolific because most of his energies went into his academic work, into his day job, into his bread and butter. In this regard, as I've said, as a classicist, Hausmann was preeminent. He was seen as one of the foremost scholars of his era. His range and scholarship was so formidable that it could very easily and very accurately be said that he could have just as, just as readily become a professor of Greek as he did a professor of Latin. This reticence, this reserve, this formality, even though it's a characteristic of the age, in Houseman it's something else. He was never a easy man or a warm man, a man that you could necessarily warm to. It was said by one of his contemporaries that he looked timid in appearance, as if he came from a long line of maiden ants. 
He could be very, very severe. He could be very caustic and cutting to his contemporaries, to his colleagues, to people who came to admire him and tell him how wonderful they thought his poetry or his work were. And when he was confronted by, how can we put this, by intelligences or capacities or intellects that he felt did not match his own or did not match his own intellectual gifts, he could be quite savage whether that was dealing with undergraduates who presented slipshod work or colleagues who presented something that he felt wasn't up to scratch. He once said, the faintest of all human passions is the love of truth, but this wasn't the case with him. He had a love of truth, of, of, of being rooted in fact, being rooted in precision, that meant that he had a mistrust of religion that was quite as um, severe as Hardy's eventually became. But for all of that, he was also shy and quite an austere man. Virginia Woolf used to talk about T.S. Eliot, and as well she should. It was her period of the Bloomsbury Group and modernism in the 1920s and 30s. He used to talk, but she used to talk about um, T.S. Eliot and his suits. T.S. Eliot wore formal suits. He wore four-piece formal suits. And the idea that we're getting towards here is that Hausmann's poetry is fundamentally confessional in a lot of ways. But as, a, as an individual, he was more buttoned up than Eliot. So that idea of uh, I grow old, I grow old, I still wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled is, has a precursor in Hausmann in his actual life. Um, Let's have a look at another poem. This is from More Poems, and this is called From the Wash, and I'm including it because we've made a link with clothing there. From the wash, the laundress sends my collars home with raveled ends. I must fit, now these are frayed, my neck with new ones, London made. Homespun collars, homespun hearts, wear to rags in foreign parts. Mine's at least as good as done, and I must get a London one. If you read A Shropshire Lad, if you read more poems, if you read any houseman, which I would recommend because it is a window onto a bygone age and a bygone way of looking at things and a bygone apprehension of masculinity, of youth, of age, of life, what you will get are the same notes repeated over and over He's like a blues artist who only knows the pentatonic scale, but who knows all of its minute shadings. If you've ever listened to B.B. King live in concert, B.B. King plays the same thing every single time he plays a lick or a run, but by God, you feel it. Um, Houseman is reflecting and capturing and expressing a late Victorian feeling that the best has gone. That's why there's this nostalgia for what has been lost. In the early Victorian period, you will also find that a lot of the writers and the artists and the poets had an obsession with little girls. Don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in the sense that once the idea of childhood was being invented, little girls became symbols of purity and innocence. And yes, it was wildly hypocritical because the same writers who would talk about the purity and innocence of a golden-haired blue-eyed child would then go and sleep with one of the child prostitutes that thronged the streets of London. The Victorian age is one of rampant hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of the things that the British have always done well. It's something that we still lead the world in, in terms of, of the, the amount we can export and the sheer quality that we can generate. But at the time, you had this society that was caught up on the idea of good manners and formal etiquette and everything being just so and morality and Christianity and the, the straight bat and the stiff upper lip and an Englishman's word being his bond and the family and all of those things and yet we had the highest amount of prostitutes on the streets of London of any other major city in the developed or undeveloped world. So we were really quite two-faced about it. But if you think about early Victorian writing or mid-Victorian writing, the little girl is often a symbol of purity and innocence. Think about Dickens and his child brides or his, his, his girl characters like Little Nell. Think of Lewis Carroll and Alice. 
Um, by the time we get to the late Victorian period, by the time we start to get there and we start to move into the Edwardian period, there becomes a fascination with boys, with little boys. Boys are symbols of vigor and promise and that gets translated when we have this sense of loss and this sense of something lost, that they hold the promise of the future, that they have vigor, that they have promise, that they are alive. It's tied in with the idea of us being an imperial country and all of the ideas around martial prowess that are linked with that. But what you also get is a very, very interesting um, idea, which is that that glory and that promise can't ever really last. Um, that death is always just over the horizon, that, and also that only the best will die young. That if you somehow, if you die when you are young, especially if you die um, for a noble cause, if you die in battle, if you die protecting the empire, protecting the ideas and ideals of England, you are forever um, held in the glory and the promise of your youth. Now, there's a fundamentally classical root to that idea, but um, the way Hausmann hitches it all together, he hitches it to war or gallows or the suicide, it's a romanticized version of it. It's nothing nice about dying young at all. Um, and there's a sense of lost love in a lot of his poems. The other element that you pick up when you read Hausmann is that as the soldiers go off to war or to, to go off to their their deaths in some distant place, the poet is a bystander. He is watching the promise being sent out to, to, to be snuffed out, but also at the same time to be elevated into this romantic, what have we lost ideal. The poet, as we read, has no part in the deaths of the people in his poems, um, or if he does, it's because he has no part in their lives. So let's look at one of his more famous poems. This is up there with Vita Lampada as something that really enshrines the ideas of what it means to be English at this time. To an athlete dying young. This is from a Shropshire lad. The time you won your town the race, we cheered you through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by, and home we brought you shoulder high. Today the road all runners come, shoulder high we bring you home, and set you at your threshold down, townsman of a stiller town. Smart lad to slip betimes away from fields where glory does not stay, and early though the laurel grows, it withers quicker than the rose. Eyes the shady night is shut, cannot see the record cut, and silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. Now you will not swell the rout of lads that wore their honours out, runners who renown outran, and the name died before the man. So set before its echoes fade the fleet of foot on the still of shade, and hold to the low lintel up the still defended challenge cup, and round that early laurel's head will flock to gaze the strengthless dead, and find unwithered on its curls the garland briefer than a girl's. The odd thing about a Shropshire lad, which is the title of Houseman's first book of poems, is that he had no rural connection there, really, and he didn't even know Shropshire very well. He was the son of a Worcester solicitor, he went to Bromsgrove School, then to Oxford, he lived for a while in London, and he spent the rest of his life in Cambridge. So the personnel of his poetry was invented, and the landscapes that he chose were a deliberately chosen setting, um, which is going into the idea of they, they're trying to think, they're trying to work out what it means to be English, British, Englishness, at a time when they weren't sure and they were going back to the land, which is quite an interesting thing to do because the reality is that the land actually doesn't tell us anything about ourselves. We think it does. We think of Britain as being this ship that has sailed out of the mists of history, that we are all involved somehow in its passage, that there is a continuous line linking us back all the way through history, all Englishmen, all Englishwomen, all British people, and the reality is that this is just a lump of rock in the Atlantic that came up. What happens is human beings, in an effort to understand who they are and where they came from and how they got to where they are, they tell stories about themselves and they attach those stories to the landscape around them. And in time, 
we forget that we've done that and we start to think that the landscape somehow has these intrinsic qualities, it has these intrinsic verities, and by living in and among it, it communicates it back to ourselves. It's a reciprocal relationship where we think that our values are reflected in the land and because they're reflected in the land, they are intrinsic in us. And that's not the case. They are created. They are, they are the result of narration, of creating a narrative about ourselves and about the places where we live. In Hausmann's case as well, this idea of the unrequited is probably because he had a passion for a fellow Oxford undergraduate called Moses Jackson. Um, by all accounts, Moses Jackson was a pretty straightforward and unreflective young man. And if he was ever aware of Hausmann's affection, um, he made sure, or he chose, or it was never made fully specific and explicit. If Hausmann's character had been less didactic and less single-minded, it's very likely that this passion might have just passed over and been replaced by other, maybe happier and certainly more productive uh, affections, productive emotionally. Um, Hausman became friendly with Jackson's younger brother, which sort of helped, but then the brother died and Hausman was left with all of these affections and the memory of them. And he carried them for the rest of his life. Jackson actually went off to India, became principal of a teacher training college there, and then took another post in Canada. Um, a Shropshire lad is dedicated to him, but when he was asked about what had caused him to write the poems, rather than say, well, there was, there was this passion or what, there was this friendship, rather than couch it in terms that might be able to be understood, when he was asked what made him write the collection that became a Shropshire lad, Housen went, oh, I, I had a period of ill health, a prolonged sore throat, and while I was recuperating, I needed something to do. So that indicates the closed-up nature of the man. Let's have another poem. This is from more poems, and it's called Shake Hands. Shake hands, we shall never be friends, all's over. I only vex you the more I try. All's wrong than ever I've done or said, and naught to help it in this dull head. Shake hands, here's luck, goodbye. But if you come to a road where danger or guilt or anguish or shame's to share, be good to the lad that loves you true, and the soul that was born to die for you and whistle and I'll be there. He carried it, he carried this unrequited passion throughout his life. And because of the depth of the affection, because of the depth of the connection, because it was such a singular focus to him, a lot of the representations of girls or women in his work, in his poetry, um, unfortunately they tend to kind of be there as an occasion for the deaths of boys. Their place in the grand scheme of things is to make the lads unhappy enough so that they go off to war or and get killed, or to make them so unhappy that they hang themselves and get killed. Um, this is hard to take with our modern sensibility. Uh, it was a very patriarchally dominated society in the late Victorian period, certainly. Um, but it's still a tough one to take, as is the idea of the lads, the lads. We might hear um, we might hear a football manager on match of the day talk about the lads done well in that way that football managers tend to do so. Um, or if we're out if we're out with our crew, we might go, come on lads, let's let's really nail this last piece and take it home and file in, in fine style. But the idea of the lad, I don't know whether it's a result of Britpop and that kind of mid nineties the the you know laddishness and the Ladette thing, which was essentially a cover for um, quite misogynistic and boorish behaviour. Um, but the idea of calling someone a lad now is a bit of a tricky one. Um, maybe not so much in the northeast, where I will still a a occasionally go, "How are you doing, lad?" When I when I see Dan, it just slips out. Um, my granddad called me a lad when I was growing up and I don't think there was any kind of, um, I don't think he was hoping that I would break my heart over a girl, join the military and go off and be shot somewhere in the empire. I'm pretty sure that wasn't there. Anyway, um, if you are into that kind of thing, you could make a lot of jokes about Houseman's poetry, about the lads and about the 
subject matter and the simple forms and the, the constant focus on being young and dying and somehow the promise that you have remaining forever about to bloom even though you are now dead um, lots of people parodied his verse as people do tend to parody things that are successful we've had you know five get off their tits on MDMA uh, now that the Enid Blyton estate is out of copyright we've had Winnie the Pooh remade as a slasher movie um, but um, a poet called Hugh Kingsmill parodied um, Houseman and he did it like this what? Still alive at 22, a clean upstanding chat like you. Sure, if your throat is hard to slit, slit your girls and swing for it. Like enough, you won't be glad when they come to hang you, lad. But bacon's not the only thing that's cured by hanging from a string. Um, the next poem I'm going to read is a dialogue between a soldier and his sweetheart. And you can see the way that English literature kind of feeds on itself here because it's responding to something that... Hardy was interested in it's it's dealing with similar themes and Hardy was a, a writer and a poet that Houseman admired so this is from last poems the deserter what sound awakened me I wonder for now tis dumb wheels on the road most like or thunder lie down twas not the drum toil at sea and two in haven and trouble far fly crow away and follow raven all that croaks for war Hark, I hear the bugle crying, and where am I? My friends are up and dressed and dying, and I will dress and die. O oh, lovers rare and trouble plenty, and carrying cheap, and daylight dear at four and twenty, lie down again and sleep. Reach me my belt and leave your prattle, your hour is gone, but my day is the day of battle, and that comes dawning on. They mow the field of man in season, farewell, my fair, and call it truth or call it treason. Farewell the vows that were. I, false heart, forsake me lightly, tis like the brave, they find no bed to joy in rightly, before they find the grave. Their love is for their own undoing, and east and west they scour about the world a wooing, a bullet to their breast. Sail away the ocean over, or sail away, and lie there with your leaden lover, for ever and a day. Like a lot of Victorian writers who seemed very, very stiff and very, very austere and very, very mannered, they would unbend with women and children in much the way that Lewis Carroll, Charles Dodgson, was, was very, very um, socially awkward, but he was very, very good with um, the children of his colleagues. So this is where Alice in Wonderland came from. And there's a good argument that he could do this because they didn't count. Now, let me explain that. He could unbend with women and children because they would not judge him in a way that would affect him because they didn't have the status in society to affect him and his standing, which to Victorian men was everything. This is a class-based society. It was much more explicit then. We are still a class-based society, but back then it was very explicit. The cufflinks that you wore, the collar that you had, what sort of waistcoats that you wore, where, what sort of job you did. Were you in trade or did you have a profession? What sort of profession was it? Was it one of the elite professions? What were the circumstances of your birth? You were constantly being ranked on a social scale. And women and children didn't count in that. And because of that, he didn't have to be stiff and austere and on his guard about it. He could, he could loosen up. Um, unfortunately, while he could unbend with women and children, there are stories and a lot of evidence that shows that when he was tr teaching at University College London, his elaborate sarcasm would often reduce his female students to tears, which is pretty damning. It must also be said that his elaborate sarcasm would often reduce male undergraduates to tears as well. He could be very, very savage about work that he felt was not up to standard. Um, the thing that tended to offend the women, though, was that when he did that, in the following weeks when they came back to class or they came back to lectures or tutorials, he would often have completely forgotten who they were, what their names were, or the fact that he'd just chewed them out the week before. So the sarcasm is one thing, but it's the complete indifference because they don't count. Um, a Shropshire Lad, which is probably the most famous of his collections, was written between 1894 and 1895. 
1895, though, he also wrote another poem, which was far more explicit than his other work. This was not uh, included in the Shropshire Lad collection. It was only published after his death. And the reason why it's important is because 1895 wasn't just the year of the publication of his first collection, it was also the year of the trial of Oscar Wilde. And this is the poem that was suppressed at the time, but which came out later. It's called, Oh, Who Is That Young Sinner? Oh, who is that young sinner with the handcuffs on his wrists? And what has he been after that they groan and shake their fists? And wherefore is he wearing such a conscience-stricken air? Oh, they're taking him to prison for the colour of his hair. Tis a shame to human nature such a head of hair as his. In the good old time twas hanging for the colour that it is. Though hanging isn't bad enough and flaying would be fair. For the nameless and abominable colour of his hair. Oh, a deal of pains he's taken, and a pretty price he's paid, To hide his polar diet of a mentionable shade. But they've pulled the beggar's hat off for all the world to see and stare, And they're hailing him to justice for the colour of his hair. Now tis oakum for his fingers and the treadmill for his feet, And the quarry gang on Portland in the cold and in the heat, And between his spells of labour and the time he has to spare, He can curse the god that made him for the colour of his hair. Now the metaphor there is pretty obvious. The abominable hair colour is also the love that dare not speak its name. Um, and it's an interesting one because Houseman with his heartiness and his lads and his stand and, stand and see your slain and take the bullet in your brain, martial boys, rah, 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 the glory of youth that all ends once youth is ended, having sympathy or understanding what Wilde was going through. It's very, very hard to think of two writers who are more different in the terms of the way that they are apprehended than Houseman and Wilde. But as one critic noted, from Wenlock Edge, you can actually see Reading Jail. Um, and the point there is that from this idea of the ideal England, the green fields, the hearty lads, the rosy-cheeked lasses, and all of those things, uh, the flowers, the wheat, the farmers farming the way they have for centuries, the old maids going to communion in the morning mist, village cricket, all of the things that we think of as England, that we still think of as being English today, despite the fact we've been one of the most heavily urbanised and industrialised countries for most of the last 250 years in the world, we still have this idea that England is a green field. Despite all of that, Houseman could see that the green fields and the ideas of England existed alongside a harder and far, far grimmer reality. And he recognised that because when Wilde was released, he sent him a copy of A Shropshire Lad. Um, he used to say with quite a lot of pride that Robert Ross, Wilde's friend, had learned some of A Shropshire Lad's poets, uh, poet, poems by heart and had recited them to Wilde when he was in jail. The occasion or the conceit or the central theme of Wilde's poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, was the hanging of a young soldier who'd murdered his sweetheart, which is a theme that could come straight out of Houseman. And like Hardy, he was fascinated by the act of hanging. Um, as a boy, Thomas Hardy had seen a woman hanged and it haunted him all of his life. And if you read through Houseman's poems, then the gallows are always turning up. So from last poems, this is the poem Eight O'Clock. He stood and heard the steeple sprinkle the quarters on the morning town. One, two, three, four, to marketplace and people, it tossed them down. Strapped noose, nighing his hour, he stood and counted them and cursed his luck. And then the clock collected in the tower its strength and struck. And that is the, that is the drop. Another of his gallows verse reads, but fetch the county kerchief and noose me in the knot and I will rot. I'm mentioning that because there was a famous American lawyer called Clarence Darrow, who I'm sure some of you will recognize the name. He amended the verse to make it read, fetch the county sheriff and noose me in the knot. And he got several of his clients, a lot of whom were actual murderers, off by emotionally quoting this line to the jury. And Houseman, who was aware of this, said it was partly due to his work 
that Leopold and Loeb, who murdered a boy for kicks in the 1920s, escaped hanging. Um, I did not lose my heart. This is from more poems. I did not lose my heart in summer's even when roses to the moonrise burst apart, when plumes were under heel and lead was flying, in blood and smoke and flame I lost my heart. I lost it to a soldier and a foeman, a chap that did not kill me, but he tried, that took the sabre straight and took it striking, and laughed and kissed his hand to me, and died. Death in Houseman is an instantaneous thing, um, which shows how much he actually knew about the realities of war, about being shot in the guts on a field in India, and bleeding out to death over several painful hours, or catching gangrene or an infection in a cut and dying over weeks and days. Uh, a, a lot of the representations of the martial uh, and of war by the Victorians are idealized. They are Arthur Arthurianized. They are romanticized in a way that Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sixoon and the war poets completely exploded uh, in the war poetry of the First World War. Be, this is because Britain was an imperial country then, and despite we the fact we have this narrative that we are a, a small, quiet, peace-loving people who only fight when we have to, which is the narrative that surrounds the First World War and the Second World War, the reality is that from the Napoleonic Wars of Conquest, right the way through into the middle of the 20th century, Britain and British soldiers were constantly fighting a series of wars somewhere in the empire pretty much every year of those 150, 160 years. And because of that, we have a cultural narrative about what that means in terms of British feats of arms. Um, but when it comes to Houseman, he not panders to that, but he actually reinforces that idea that death is an instantaneous thing. Again, we're going back to this idea that to die young is wonderful and it enshrines us in the glory of our youth and we never grow old. We're getting towards Binion's famous lines about the end of the First World War. So Houseman would say something like, shot so quick, so clean and ending. And the wars that he saw, certainly in his early life, the Zulu Wars and the Boer War, which were kind of the, his wars, he did live through the First World War, obviously, they were fairly hygienic in the sense that they were small scale in as much as they did not touch large proportions of the populations of both in Britain and also in the countries in which they were fought. The wars that Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon fought in um, were very, very different. Um, their poetry told a different truth about war. One which makes it difficult to regard the military element in Houseman as little more than a stage setting for what he's trying to do in the poem. It's a prop. Because when the Great War came and hundreds of thousands of young men died in battle, often tens of thousands on the same morning, the first morning of the Somme in 1916, 20,000 British troops, and then 20,000 the next day, and 20,000 the next day, it, it was horrific, unimaginable slaughter. But when that Great War came, and because of his martial inflections, you might have thought that Houseman would be shocked or moved or affected, um, he appears not to have been looking at any of his correspondence or any of his work. But that's possibly because he was a dry, didactic and quite austere man, quite a buttoned up man, possibly because of his unrequited passions. Um, but poets are also not statisticians. To them, one death means more than a thousand because you can, you can frame it in such a way that makes it seem noble or elegiac or glorious, whereas thousands is just carnage, and it's very hard to make that into something artistically. When men are dying like flies, to put it another way, that's what they're dying like. They're no longer men, they're just numbers, and that's horrible. Um, it's even more surprising that he didn't react to it given that his college, which was Trinity College, was turned into a hospital. So his daily life was peopled during the Great War with the kind of young men he'd written about and their endings weren't quick and clean and they weren't noble and they weren't elegiac at all. The sad truth is that while the other dons made them welcome and recognised what they were going through, Houseman just complained to the university authorities about the inconvenience that it was calling to him. 
it was too close to home. It was on his doorstep. Um, he preferred the world of the imagination because the landscape of the heart for him was more comfortable than the actual reality of the landscape of the trenches. Tell me not here. Tell me not here it needs not saying what tune the enchantress plays in aftermaths of soft September or under blanching maize. For she and I were long acquainted and I knew all her ways. On russet floors by waters idle the pine lets fall its cone. The cuckoo shouts all day at nothing in leafy dells alone. And traveller's joy beguiles in autumn hearts that have lost their own. On acres of the seeded grasses the changing burnish heaves. Are marshalled under moons of harvest stand still all night the sheaves. Or beaches strip in storms for winter and stain the wind with leaves. Possess as I possessed a season the countries I resign, where over elmy plains the highway would mount the hills and shine, and full of shade the pillared forest would murmur and be mine. For nature, heartless, witless nature, will neither care nor know what strangers' feet may find the meadow and trespass there and go, nor ask amid the dews of morning if they are mine or no. That kind of dry, didactic austerity was something that would extend to Hausmann's um, appreciation of nature. Every spring he would note the date that the cherries blossomed in the Cambridge backs, for example. Some of the trees that blossom there now today are trees that Hausmann actually witnessed being planted. Um, loveliest of trees from a Shropshire lad. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough, and stands about the woodland ride, wearing white for Easter tide. Now of my threescore years and ten, twenty will not come again, and take from seventy springs a score, it only leaves me fifty more. And since to look at things in bloom, fifty springs are little room, about the woodlands I will go, to hear the cherry hung with snow. Houseman was like a lot of people who are famous. They complain about the fact that they're famous and everyone looks at them, but they also secretly enjoy the fact that they are famous and everyone looks at them. So he took a walk every afternoon by regular routes. Um, and if anyone, an acquaintance or an admirer, tried to acknowledge him or talk with him, he would just completely, completely ignore them. Um, the famous story is that the philosopher Wittgenstein once had rooms on the same staircase as Hausmann, um, as did indeed the art historian and spy Anthony Blunt. Something about the water in Cambridge. Anyway, Wittgenstein was one day in need of the loo, couldn't get to his own room. He knocked at Hausmann's door and asked to use the lavatory. And Hausmann just looked at him and went, certainly not, and closed the door in his face. That represents an a determination almost to, to, to push people away, to not be liked, to be so unremittingly rude. But he also enjoyed his status and his fame. He liked the idea that heads turned as he passed. Um, he once said that the fame that he had as a poet, and as an academic, was like a cushion between him and the hard ground. Um, people who took his poems as messages uh, in code or as flags saying that he needed to be helped um, and then plucked up the courage to go and talk to him to address what they took to be the real man the author of a Shropshire lad would find themselves sharply rebuffed um, and the reason for that is quite simple if he actually could have ever revealed the real man within he would have had no need to write the poems so having done so he's not about to give himself away the poems are part of his armour, part of his shield. They might gesture towards something, but they don't want to invite anybody in. The idea that artists have a hard time and that it's tough is an idea that is put around largely by artists. Um, if you think that it's tough to write a three chord song and get it onto the charts and have people tell you that you're great and sing along at your gigs, then you should try being a plumber or a cleaner or a nurse in a hospital and then you might actually know what it actually really does mean to face the idea of life being hard and tough. Um, but the reality is that there was still this idea in the Victorian period, as there is today, that the artist was somehow a, a man alone or a person alone who goes out beyond the circle of firelight and returns to it having travelled through the wilderness and learned great lessons and returns to the firelight with pearls of wisdom that he gives to an adoring public. Artists perpetuate that because 
a lot of artists, and I'm probably going to get in trouble here, but a lot of people who work in the creative arts and the creative industries, and a lot of the people who've written the great books and the great songs and the great um, works that have enriched our lives or passed the time or entertained us, a lot of them are doing it not because they enjoy the act of making stuff or they're interested in the actual art, but because they want the recognition. And a lot of that springs from personal unhappiness whereby they can only feel like they exist if they're getting external validation. Um, if you are normal and well-adjusted, you might like to work upon sapphic odes because you find them interesting and fulfilling, but you won't call yourself a poet and flounce around in a shirt and demand that young ladies pay homage to you and mop your fevered brow as you try and write something on the theme of love. And there's something in that in Houseman. Yes, the inner life has its routines, like every life has its routines, and they can be just as tedious as the things that we have to do to get through the day in our outer lives. Um, but they're not just the preserve of the artist. They're the preserve of all of us. Um, if you really get into Houseman's poetry, you can tell that he's a classicist because there is an idea of, uh, of, of a moral code, of an ethical code, of a morality there that is rivaling the Christianity that he would have grown up around it um, and the conventional ethics that he surrounded himself with. He is very, very fixated on the ideas of honor, loyalty and pride and they outweigh modesty and self-denial. It's the, the point of Houseman's poetry is often about doing the right things in the right circumstances and that bespeaks a moral framework, a moral code that he had. And although his poems are autobiographical, um, the landscapes he's talking about, which we take to be England and we take to be an idealised England, are actually the landscapes of his, of his heart. Um, so the blue remembered hills of the next poem you know, we can identify that they are the Malvins. Of course we can, but they're also symbols of a lost time as much as a lost place. And this is Into My Heart, An Air That Kills. Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. So you can see that there's more to Houseman's poems and poetry than just ideas of what England is and what Englishness is. But you can also see that they reflect a national question at the time as to what those things are. The reason why we have this odd construction that England is a green field, that it is a, a field full of grain by a country lane, and all of those ideas was because there was something of an existential crisis created by the fact of developing such a large empire. So the empire was technically British. It was the British Empire. But as it expanded and as it grew, the empire became a place that was British, but that was not actually Britain. So what you have is you have this construction of what authentic Britishness is, which is essentially, unfortunately, even though we are a nation of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, it tends to be couched in terms of England, and it tends specifically to be couched in terms of the landscapes of the Thames Valleys, because they are the places going back in history, um, going all the way back to the time of the post-Roman period and the emergence of Alfred and the Seven Kingdoms, they were the places of the most fertile land, so you had the most um, powerful warlords going there, and the warlords eventually became kings of small areas, and then the kings eventually became kings and queens and ruling families of England. So you have this idea that you have this huge vast empire which is the British Empire but it's not Britain and what is true and real and authentic is the land because the land has always been. It goes all the way back to the time of Alfred the Great. Um, and they it becomes a symbol of what England is. So that's why we talk about the green fields rather than we talk about in Houseman's time the slums and rookeries of St Giles's, or we talk about the game of cricket rather than we talk about the um, foundries on Tyneside or the coal miners in Durham. And Houseman's poems play right into that because he's talking about landscapes. 
in such a way that it captures the idea that something's been lost in the vast expansion of empire and the expansion of, of the cities and the expansion of um, the population and the expansion of everything, everything getting bigger and faster and noisier, we've lost something. But what he's actually talking about, ultimately, is what he has lost himself. So that was Houseman. That's two Victorians in a row. Um, let's think of one to do next week. Feel free to message in and suggest someone if you like. Doesn't have to be a Victorian or an Edwardian. Can be anyone you fancy. And in the meantime, there are new episodes up about uh, getting a boat moving from a standing start. And there's a new episode coming up on Friday talking more about rowing. And if you enjoy our podcast, um, buy us a coffee. Click the link below, buy us a coffee. It would help us to keep it going. And I hope that you enjoyed this and see you next time.